Hi, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and on this episode of our podcast, we have got all kinds of information about the latest viral food trends. We've got a one-minute cooking tip. We've got an interview with the fabulous Lucy Schaefer, and lots more. So let's get started. Let's talk about... If you watch TikTok or YouTube or... If you watch TikTok, I don't think I can. I think I'm too old. <laughs> oh, you'd be surprised. There are a lot oh, of old people on TikTok. There now. are. There are a lot of old people on TikTok. And it kind of amazes me uh, that I know this. Well, A, because I had TikTok. But I'm going to uh, confess that I erased it off my phone. Because <laughs> well, because I... you spent hours hours scrolling you, because you spent hours not so you had no part in this because we spent hours scrolling and i discovered it was just too much of a time suck but anyway i uh, of course there are all kinds of people on tiktok and the most fascinating to me are the food videos of course and some of them are really great there's like really great food travel videos there's a guy that posts all these Sichuan chili sauce factories. You can make your eyes burn watching them. Interesting. And I've well, seen candy making in the streets of Seoul. I think a lot of this started with mukbanging. And if you don't know what <sighs> mukbanging is, mukbanging didn't start with TikTok. It started on YouTube. Well, I don't know where it started, but it, it became popular on YouTube. If you don't know what mukbanging is, it's watching people eat grotesque amounts of food just and often disgusting food but it doesn't just have to no, be disgusting it, it have could be, be disgusting it can be like somebody eating like three gallons of ice cream and it's not competitive eating they're no. not doing it in a time frame it's no. not like the hot dog thing on the fourth of july no it's not and it's, it's almost sexual <clears throat> well i think that's the, what they're planning on it's kind of gross and i I'm f I, I was fascinated by mukbanging for about five seconds, <laughs> and then I couldn't stand it anymore. But there are some really interesting viral trends that have gone crazy lately, and there's stuff I never thought of. And we're talking about fun recipes here, things that something actually made me slap my forehead and went, duh. And the quality of these videos are pretty good. They're highly produced. They get millions of viewers. So, like, here's the one that I love. It's really become viral. Every news outlet's talking about it, corn ribs. It's kills me it broke the internet i don't really quite still get it but because i don't if you remember from a previous podcast i don't quite get corn on the cob but um <laughs> anyway what are corn ribs so if you, you don't know take the corn cob and you cut it into quarters lengthwise right yeah. which is not easy to do because the cob is if you stand it up and then they use a you cleaver to, you have to cut an end off so it'll stand yeah. it up and then some people just do it with a big knife some people hit the knife with a rubber mallet to get it down so now you have a half, the lengthways, like a pickle, right? Then you cut that in half lengthwise again. So you have four long quarters of corn cob. I just, this kills me. Then they mix I... together olive oil and spices or melted butter and spices. Then you throw them in the air fryer at 400 degrees, I don't know, like 10, 15 minutes, just until they curl a bit. The cob will curl. The, the kernels get brown and toasty, and it looks... Kind of like a rib. So it's a little it's, vegan ribs. It's really bizarre to me because it just seems to me to be a way to air fry corn on the cob, which you can just cut the the corn horizontally and put these smaller sections into the air fryer. But whatever. I think I get the pleasure of this, that it is a rib-like yes, object you that is corned. <laughs> what has happened to the corn? So it's, yeah, it's ribby. And then the corn, the, the cob ribby. actually bends a little like a bone. Ribby. So, But you can't, well. You don't I, eat the cob. You, well, I you mean, eat off of it. I, you eat it off like you eat 
a pork rib and you leave the cob behind. I get it. It's intriguing. It seems to be one of these things that if I went to a party and they were serving corn ribs, I'd be like, oh, and that would be the end of my entire discussion with it. But this thing, honestly, corn ribs has broken the internet, as Bruce says. It is everywhere. A second thing that is, to me, fascinating, and this is only because I love, love, love crunchy things, are pasta chips. What are pasta chips? So basically you cook pasta you toss it with olive oil and spices, just like the corn ribs, and you throw them in your air fryer. So These are all air fry things. Yeah. Now, this only speaks to the giant popularity of the air fryer, too. But go on. So I've seen people do it with rigatoni, and you have, like, crispy tubular things. But in my opinion, the best way to do it was orchietti, the little ear-shaped flat pastas, because mm. they mostly resemble sort of corn chips when they're done. So you boil them till they're tender. You drain them, you toss them with a little bit of olive oil and herbs, throw them once again in your air fryer, 400 degrees or 10 minutes, tossing until they're crispy. And you have crispy, crunchy pasta chips. I love this idea because, of course, I'm so crazy about crunchy things. And I want to eat all the crunchy things, all the things that are crunchy. But it's it's kind of uh, astounding to me. And it seems like this is obvious that someone should have come up with this a long mm-hmm. time ago. I'm telling you, we hit, I hit my forehead when I was watching these and went, duh. I know. The pasta chips are fabulous. Now, we should say right off that there's nothing healthy about this because you're taking wheat pasta, you know, just standard wheat pasta, and you are coating it in fat and air frying it. So you're not you're not getting away with anything here. This isn't like a better version of potato chips. No, no, no. You're still getting all the carbs. Now, yeah. I, I have not tried it like with chickpea pasta or alternative pastas, so maybe that works. But well, maybe. If, you, if you do that and you try it, come join us on Facebook in our group, Cook Me Bruce and Mark, and share pictures and tell us about it because I want to know. Okay, so the last thing, Bruce is the chef in our duo, and I'm the writer. And Bruce says, this is so obvious, he's embarrassed he never <laughs> thought about it before. So what is it? Well, it's ramen lasagna. Mm. I mean, I use the no-boil lasagna noodles all the time. And they're so easy because you just layer them with cheese Mm. and with sauce Mm. and with meat and stuff. But I was watching this guy make lasagna with the dried ramen squares. So just explain how this goes. I want to actually visualize it. Okay. So instead of lasagna noodles, you're going to take dried ramen squares. So you put them in the bottom of your 9 by 13 pan in one layer, break them if necessary, or you can even make individual little lasagnas by putting one in the bottom of a small dish. Go on, go on. Pour some jarred marinara on it, sprinkle some pre-shredded cheese. You could put some pepperoni or any kind of meat that's already pre-cooked you want and keep layering it that way. And then you put it in the oven. And that's it. And the ramen noodles. Act- why would you do this? Why would you ruin? Why would you do this to a perfectly good lasagna? Because it's about texture. Because when you have a lasagna, even with regular noodles, let's face it, it can get pasty, right? Those noodles get. I guess. Bit, but with with the ramen, it's all about texture. You have this really cool spaghetti-like texture, and it's lighter. And some ramen noodle packages are flavored. Some come with the seasoning packet separate, but some of the noodles actually are flavored themselves. But why would you want that flavor? Why would you want Asian flavors, ginger and I don't know what, in your lasagna? Well, that's only some of them. Most people are doing this with plain noodles. But it's cool because you can. 
That's why you do it. You do it uh, that's what can. I feel <laughs> that corn ribs are is because you can. Pasta chips I get because it's crunchy. Corn ribs I feel like it's because you can. And this I feel like it's because you can't. I don't know. I, maybe I'm not the traditionalist in the two of us. When we sit down to concept out a book, I'm always the crazy guy that's like, oh, I don't know. Why don't we put pickles in a chocolate cake? But I'm the guy that wants to break all the rules. But in this case, I feel like we're doing it because we can. But I kind of get it. I mean, the lasagna, the lasagna with the ramen would have a very chewy texture at the bottom of it, right? It would. It would but there is, a, there is an air fry thing you could do with ramen noodles, too. This is not related to the ramen lasagna, but since we're talking about how good the other air fryer recipes were, okay. in our Essential Air Fryer book, we take those ramen noodle squares and we pour boiling water over them till they're tender but not completely soft. Then I let them dry a bit, and I spray them with oil, and I put them in the air fryer, and they get super crunchy, kind of like pasta chips, and I actually make a crispy pasta salad out of that. It's, it's You can actually just eat them on their own. I remember this very well, and you can shatter it up into little bitty crunchy bits, which is, of course, the whole point of anything that you ever want to eat is shattering it up. <laughs> Except when it shatters your teeth when you bite no, on it. No, <laughs> even ice cream should be shatterable. Okay. So the, the, the thing here is don't poo-poo all the stupid cooking videos you might see on YouTube and TikTok because some of them are really cool. Well, I suppose that's right. So having done that, let's do our own thing, which is a one-minute cooking tip. This is always the second segment of our program. And what is our one-minute cooking tip this week? I want to say something first before I tell you the tip. The temperature of your dinnerware is as important as the temperature of your food. Makes wow. sense, right? So yeah. Cold glasses, yeah. cold drinks should go in cold glasses, hot yeah. food should go in hot plates. Yeah. So the tip is keep your glasses in the freezer for cold cocktails and your plates in a warm oven for warm dinners. Oh, there you go. You know, when I lived in Madison, Wisconsin, when I was in grad school, I had a radiator in the kitchen that actually had a little place in it where you could put plates. <laughs> it was crazy. It was one of those iron radiators. And you could actually put plates in it. And it had. It was great because I could just stack plates in there and keep them warm. Warm plates at dinner are fabulous. Do you think it was also used for bread rising in the old days? Oh, maybe. I never thought about that. Because you told a, me about that. It's a moist heat environment because it's a radiator. I would have thought it was actually designed as a bread warming thing, but you use it as plate warming, which is brilliant. Uh, yeah, maybe so. I don't know. Uh, and you did, I have to say it was narrow and you had to kind of stack the plates on their sides, but mm -hmm. maybe it was for that. But uh, I think warm plates are great for dinner. Okay, so we've blown past one minute. So let's move on to our interview. Bruce's interview today is with Lucy Schaefer. She has a new book out. We know Lucy because Lucy has photographed some of our cookbooks, but now the photographer is the author and she has a new book out and Bruce has an interview with the fabulous Lucy Schaefer. Before we get to this segment, I want to remind everyone to go to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Join the group, join the conversation. Everybody shares lots of stuff. We have lots of fun. And subscribe to this podcast. So you got two things to do. Subscribe to this podcast and come to our Facebook group, Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Today I'm interviewing Lucy Schaefer. She's an author, photographer, and director. Since she shot her first cookbook in 2007, which I am very proud to say was a book that Mark and I wrote, she has been commissioned to photograph more than 50 cookbooks and craft books. Her new book, School Lunch, Unpacking Our Shared Stories, is the first book she's written as well as photographed. You can visit www.schoollunchstories.com for more about this book. 
And I want to find out more about this book. Welcome, Lucy, to Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Thanks so much. And thanks for that lovely intro. The book is all about stories from different people around the world, some famous, some not so famous. And they talk about lunch, how they've experienced lunch, what their dreams of lunch would be for their kids. What brought this whole idea? It was August in 2016 when I first started this as an idea. And it was kind of about to be back to school. I have two kids. I was going to have to start the chore of packing lunches because to me it is a chore. Um, And I sort of started daydreaming. What did my parents pack? What do they pack in other countries? And so I thought it would be fun just to do a little one day shoot test and make a little promo card out of it to send around. But very quickly, as soon as I started doing some of these interviews, I realized what a rich subject matter it was and the project just kind of snowballed and grew from there. And it became something that I worked on whenever I had free time for a couple of years. And then I um, put together a book proposal and sold it as a book and it took on more momentum after that. Well, as one would expect from a fantastic photographer, um, the book is beautiful and you have a collection of portraits in the book that are, that are really, really amazing. Tell me your process for this book. Did you do in-person interviews? Were this on the phone, email? How did you work out interviewing all the people you talked about lunch with? Yeah, yeah. So it's a mix. I'd say some of it was in person, especially because, you know, my parents, for example, are in this book. So people like that that are very close to me, it was easy to interview them in person. I did record audio of every single interview. Um, I did some by the phone, like, you know, some of the celebrities uh, George Foreman, Padma Lakshmi was by phone, but it is fun to have that audio still. And that just helped me just focus on the interview and not trying to scramble and, and take notes. And then I did also, partway through this project, I decided to do a portrait pop-up booth in Union Square in New York. And I just sort of set up a little booth and had a sign that said, free portraits if you sign this model release and tell us about your lunch, basically. So from that, I, that day, I shot 80 different portraits, got 80 different stories. And I think 10 or maybe 11 of those made it into the 70 that are included. Hey, if I had known about that, I would have come in for a new headshot. Yeah, I mean, people did. People were using it for their dating profile pictures. And you know, but um, it was win-win because I got some really cool, interesting stories and got to get outside of my network you know, living in Brooklyn at the time of making this book, I really was able to connect to people with a lot of diverse backgrounds and um, home countries that were different and home stories that were different. But I still wanted to get away from my connections and get just totally people off the street. Um, and so that was fun. You have some pretty amazing names uh, in the book. I mean, you said Padma Lakshmi. You've also um, interviewed Jacques Pepin and Melissa Clark and Marcus Samuelson, they all told you their most heartfelt stories about their school lunch and what it meant to them. Were you surprised by any of their stories? Definitely. You know, you mentioned Jacques Pepin. I was really surprised by his story and I probably shouldn't have been, but I, um, in my head was like, oh, you know, Jacques Pepin's fancy French chef, like he must've had some really delicious food. You know, he grew up in wartime Um, He went to, he was with the Jesuit school and they gave him this, he was like, I guess you could call it bread, you know, and he had to, he had to knock it on the table to knock the bugs out. And, and then he would sort of beg barter and steal from the farm boys that come with a little jar of lard. Um, And his story was one day he realized he could get lard from one kid, 
turn the bread over try to get homemade jam from another kid. And he was kind of laughing that the, the flavors didn't go together, but it still felt like, you know, better than this hard bread. Marcus Samuelson, I was surprised by how influential he said school lunch was to him. You know, he, in his interview said, school lunch is one of the top three reasons I became a chef. And I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Tell me more. Um, and he really, you know, he was very influenced by his grandmother's cooking and the care that she made food and the ingredients she put into food. But then he sort of realized the difference of what, um, if you're making at an institutional scale, like the meatballs aren't gonna be maybe rolled by hand if you have to feed hundreds of people. And he really became interested in, you know, scaling food and ingredients and the difference between stuff made at home and maybe made in an industrial kitchen. So that was super fascinating. And of course, Sweden school lunch. I mean, that's one of the ones, the, the book, it ranges between the food looking delicious and the food looking disgusting. And definitely the Swedish school lunches was oh, that, that one I would definitely eat any day. I, I find it fascinating that it was him wanting to improve almost the quality of school lunches based on what he was getting at home and seeing and wait, we could be doing this. And that inspired him. I, I know for me, becoming a chef and learning to cook was all about wanting to eat better because my mother was a terrible cook. Interesting. I like that for him, his mother and grandmother were great cooks and he wanted to be able to bring that to more people. And then yeah. the school lunch was a way to think about doing that. That's really cool. You also included a lot of non-food celebrities. Mm -hmm. um, you have a software tester in New York and a high school student in Minnesota, a high school science teacher in San Antonio. How did their stories differ from the food celebrities? Or were they not all that different? They were and weren't different. I mean, to me, I basically spent five years asking everybody in my life, what'd you have for school lunch? What'd you have for school lunch? You know, I was surprised. For example, someone that I worked with who is a designer, she was talking about, she grew up in Venezuela and she was talking about how her mom packed her sort of a healthy lunch and she really just wanted the junk food at the cafeteria, which is a common thread. Kids always want the junk food. She had this sort of clever plan where she would sell pictures of her brother, who was super cute, and all the other girls wanted the pictures of her brother. So she was selling pictures of her brother to get money for the cafeteria junk food. Stories like that, like you can't, you can't expect. And so I really did feel like anybody was a potential subject. You know, I could really reach out to any celebrity because everybody had school lunch. You know, I could, I could reach out to any walk of life. And I did, I tried to find someone who grew up in a circus to wonder like, what was, what was that like? And, and what was that like? So they had like this truck that part, it was a truck that everybody ate at, um, you know, with fold down tables. And, and um, this woman really liked Catherine Binder. She really liked to get their pasta salad and she put it in a little paper cup. And that was like her thing, but it was almost more like diner type food. And she would be eating with other performers or, you know, stagehands or her, her dad, who was actually um, the ringmaster at the time. Reading through all these stories, I think you found the universal theme in so many where other people's lunches always seem to be better than ours. Oh, and definitely. <laughs> I mean, you have you know, Australian writer Ricky Markson's fermented macrobiotic food that her mom was also giving to her father to fight his cancer. Right. And as you said, Jacques Pepin trying to get someone's salted pork right. fat for his bread. Why do we look at other people's food and think it's always better than ours? So many people were like, 
Shelly Stocking had the best, like they remembered like first and last name of like this kid in elementary school who had the best food. Um, Sam Cass, who was the White House chef to the Obamas, he was just very livid about this, that his mom packed him just, you know, a healthy standard, healthy lunch. And he really viewed the lunchroom as like this trading grounds, like all the kids would come and trade their fruit. I'll trade you the fruit roll up for the, you know, chocolate chip cookie or whatever. And he was like, and I had applesauce, you know, <laughs> he just like nobody wanted it. Um, and so I think it is really universal. And a cafeteria is is such a social place for kids. And you sort of where you first learn about differences and kids are very interested in things that are fair or not fair. So this kind of inequity stands out to a child that somebody gets this awesome snack and you don't. So it's very much a universal theme. Wow. I always ate my school lunch way before lunch. I was always ducking under my desk and eating whatever sandwich my dad. So by the time lunch came, I didn't have anything for anyone to be jealous of at all. Yeah. <laughs> you wrote everybody's story in the first person. That's got to have been difficult, I would think, because you want to capture their voice. You don't want to misrepresent them. And then how'd you manage that? I did. You know, I went back and forth a lot with each subject because it was really important to me to be true to their voices and to have it be their voices and not my voice. Um, so that is, like I said, why I did the recording, you know, so I could actually listen to their story again, listen to it again, and really just edit it for clarity, move it around, cut lots of parts out. In some cases, I went back to them again and asked some follow-up questions if I needed to um, kind of shape it in a certain way. And I definitely ran stories by people. I also was equally concerned with their school lunch memory, the the studio food shot, that that was recreated accurately. So some parts of the interview that don't make it to the book, but were probably half of the interview was their actual description of what their lunch looked like. So if they said, oh, I got apple slices, I would say, okay, was it in a Ziploc bag? Was it in a Tupperware container? Was it dried out by the time you got to lunch? Was it a yellow apple? Was it a red apple? You know, I really wanted to know exactly. They said it was a lunchbox. Okay, what character was on it? Was it metal? Was it plastic? And then I went to eBay. I went to Etsy. I sourced props from all over the world um, and I would send pictures back to the people like, does this lunchbox look right? Or is this the kind of pouch that your milk came in? And that was actually a super fun challenge because the stories, you know, my subjects ranged in age from six to 93. So I really was telling stories from a wide period of time and I wanted each one to have the right mark to it. Or if they were Norwegian and their mother wrote them their note, I wanted to write it in Norwegian, that kind of thing, and really have it be as accurate as possible in both the, the words and the pictures. That could only happen if a photographer or an art director kind of mind is working on this book. Uh, someone who's just writing, just some food journals would never think of those details, but that's so important, I think, to get across what you're trying to do here. It's like the apples are perfect. I mean, were they browning? Did they leave the pits on? Did they peel them? Yeah, exactly. And that's what I wanted. And you know what? More than once I would send a picture to the subject and they would reply, I've got tears in my eyes or I just sent it to my mom or like. So it was so satisfying when I did nail it and when it was like exactly like brought back those memories for them. Um, and I think that's what I'm trying to also do for our for the readers of this book that you can flip through and be like, oh, my gosh, that's my lunch. And also, wait, what is that lunch? That's so different from anything I had. So you can kind of get both. I think the book does bring up a lot of emotions for people. It's so powerful. And speaking of those emotions, you talk in the book about lunch being so much more than bologna or peanut butter, that really lunch is about 
traditions and values and even about love and explain that a little bit more to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, in positive and negative ways, um, I kind of delved into that a little bit with some of these stories. I focused on the elementary school years on purpose because that's the time when you really don't have any control. You're a kid and you're going to get for lunch whatever the adults around you can provide. And that's influenced by the culture, the time, the place, and also just the idiosyncrasies of your own family. And, you know, there was one woman, Michaela Walker, whose mom packed her the exact same thing every day for six years. And it was an apple, apple juice and peanut butter and jelly down to the way the the sandwich was sliced was the same every day. And this girl, Michaela would beg with her mother, like, can you do? And there was just, this is a loving mother daughter, but on this one (laughs) point, there was just, they were locked. And there was also a lot of poignant stories. For example, George Foreman grew up really, really poor. He grew up so poor that his family could really only afford one meal a day. And that, that meal wasn't lunch. That was sort of when you, it was kind of an early dinner. So he would actually take a paper bag, an empty paper bag to school. He'd blow it up with air. So it looked like he had something. So to sort of for his own pride and because kids don't want to be laughed at, they don't want to feel different. So it's, you know, stories like that are really poignant and kind of make you realize how important school lunch is to all kids and how important these universal lunch programs are and making sure that kids have enough to eat. And it's not something in the end, George Foreman and all of his sisters sort of like dropped out of school because I think this is a large reason reason or part of that. And he talked about how, you know, all violence in his childhood is, was built around hunger. There was another story of someone who couldn't even remember what they had for school lunch. And this was someone who grew up in South America and was gay and was really not accepted by their family and had so much childhood trauma that they just couldn't even remember. They remembered the pencil case that their dad got them that was because they were kind of showered with presents as a kid instead of love, but had no memory of, of any school lunch. So I tried to include stories like that just to show the range of emotions that can um, happen in childhood that are, you know, really around lunch and lunch really stands in for, like you said, so much more. Speaking of lunch is a very powerful subject. You've done it incredibly well Thank you. in your book, School Lunch, Unpacking Our Shared Stories. The photographs are beautiful. The stories are moving. Um, I wish you great luck with the book. I think it's fantastic. And Bruce, I have a question for you. Shoot. What did you have for your school lunch? Do you, do you remember? <laughs> My two favorite lunches were either leftover hamburgers on a cold toasted English muffin with a slice of onion that was definitely eaten by about 10 o'clock that (laughs) definitely did not make it to lunch. And if I was real lucky and my dad had gone to the deli the day before we got pastrami, that was gone by nine (laughs) o'clock. My lunches never made it, never made it to the lunch. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, thanks for being on Cooking with Bruce and Mark and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That was so. Now I want to eat lunch in so <laughs> in so many different ways. I want to eat lunch. Pick, pick a celebrity to have lunch with. I'd love to pick a celeb. Let's see if I had to pick a celebrity to have lunch with. I don't even know who. Living I'd or pick. dead, living or dead, doesn't matter. Oh, I don't know who I'd pick. Emily Dickinson. That's not a celebrity. That's <laughs> in a, your mind. Well, in my mind, but that's not a celebrity. I don't know. I think of most celebrities as jerks. So. Um, <laughs> 
I don't want to have dinner with Ava Gardner. <laughs> Gross. Can you Ava, imagine? How old are you? <laughs> Ava Gardner. I'm very old and very gay. Okay, so our last segment. I'm just very gay and very tired. Oh, well, that's always the case. Um, so our last segment is what's making us happy in food this week. So what is making you happy in food this week, Bruce? Total Wine and Liquors in West Hartford, <laughs> Connecticut. Okay, it's not just in West Hartford. Total Wine and Liquor is everywhere. But I like the one in West Hartford because it's only like an hour from us and I can go there. They have the most ridiculous selection of distilled spirits at fabulous prices. No, they are not paying us for this. I wish they would. They're not giving me a discount for saying this. I wish they would. But we went there the other day to buy a birthday present for a friend and got a bottle of 25-year aged Armagnac that we had it with him last night and it was syrupy and raisiny and tasted like dark chocolate and burnt sugar. I love that place because yeah. I find something there's delicious every time I go. Total wines we've been to in Dallas where my family lives. Uh, there's one out toward DFW Airport. There's one on Central Expressway. They have an amazing selection of distilled spirits of all sorts. Just overwhelming. It is great. Okay, here's what's making me happy in food this week. It's being connected to the person who provides us food. We mm. buy our local meat from a local producer, our local meat from a local producer. We buy beef from a local producer and some pork and some lamb uh, from her. And I love it that I had burgers this week and I had a steak this week and they were connected to a person. And I know that person, Kelly, and I know the meat that she provides. And there's something very comforting about that. Wow, I love that you chose that. She has a great farm. She's a really fabulous person. Um, and I like going out there and seeing her animals out in the fields. And what's really great is we have this relationship so that I can get exactly also what I want. Because well, when I true. go to the supermarket, yes, I have a relationship with the butcher in the supermarket. And he'll cut me what I want, but he doesn't always have everything. But, you know, Kelly sends a new animal for harvest, you know, every few weeks. And I could say, can you have them do X, Y, and Z? I think the point of this is that you two should figure out how to be better connected to where you get your food. If you uh, get your ice cream from a local shop, if you shop at a farmer's market, if you shop at a local food stand, if you buy your meat in any way from someone, even, let me just say, the butcher at your supermarket, get connected to that person. Say hello. Say hi each time you walk by. You'll slowly build a relationship, and I guarantee you, you'll have a better experience with the food you cook if you're in a relationship with the person who provides that food. So that's it for this episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark. Please leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts from. Leave a review and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And we will be back next week with a new show, lots of new segments, including a crazy great food find, my new favorite thing. That's next week on Cooking with Bruce and Mark.